A study showed that women account for 60% of stroke deaths in the U.S. Yet, and I believe as a direct cause of the majority of studies done in cardiovascular disease, was done on men. The avatar of the 70 kilogram, you know, white male. And many of these studies border on the ridiculous. The, the major studies um, that have set the so-called gold standard in cardiovascular treatments, such as aspirin and statins, mostly done and some exclusively only on men. And that's just one powerful example of gender bias and negative impact on diagnosis. Um, you know, conditions, gender bias shows up in every aspect of medicine. I mean, every aspect. I'm just giving you one quick example. Gender bias, what is it and how does it affect your health? How does gender bias affect our healthcare system and your role in that healthcare system? And what can we do about it to make our system better? These are the essential questions we are gonna be diving into today very deeply with Dr. Ben Gonzalez. I am Dr. Andrew Wong, co-founder of Capital Integrative Health. This is a podcast dedicated to transforming the consciousness around what it means to be healthy and understanding the root causes of both disease and wellness. And I would add that today's podcast is going to be focusing on how we can better the healthcare system itself. Ben Gonzalez is medical director of Atlantis Medical Wellness Center in Silver Spring, Maryland. He believes in the overall holistic approach to maintaining your health that includes proper nutrition, exercise, and well-being. He's also a board-certified physician with a background in molecular genetics and nutrition. And I would add that he's passionate about bringing gender bias to the forefront of conversations on how to optimize our healthcare system. Today, we're gonna to discuss a really important topic, how gender bias in research, diagnosis, and healthcare overall impacts the care that you receive and the treatment that you deserve. Welcome, Dr. Ben Gonzalez to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on today. My pleasure. Yeah, so we've known each other for a while now, and uh, we, we, we've talked a lot about integrative health, hormones, functional medicine, you know, just kind of informally over the years. But uh, recently, you know, we were talking about some other topics that have come up, one of, one of which is really, really important that we haven't covered on this podcast yet that I really want to dive into today, and you're an expert on this, called gender bias. So first of all, let's talk about what that is and why that's so important in medicine and health. Uh, well, sure. And in fact, when I give when I give these discussions, um, I start with this story that kind of accelerated what I already knew the underlying issues with all of the, this this whole subject on gender bias. But it was 16 years ago when I opened up my clinic. I had just retired from the military, and um, um, and I was doing some fun things at the time, um, as well as. Um, functional medicine and um, and some of the fun things I was doing was neurotoxins, Botox, things like that. And a patient, 42-year-old Sarah, um, came to me to see me for Botox, simple Botox. And I did the usual Dr. Gonzalez thing, told her, um, you know, asked her the basic questions and the allergies. And then in the end, uh, the, the, the intro, I said, so how are you feeling? That one question, she literally just broke down in tears, just uh, the, 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 you can't speak sobbing. And, and when she, and I thought I, I, I thought I had offended her in some way, or I said something that, that, that uh, obviously triggered her. Um, and then when she, when she, when she got her, her, her voice back, she says, she goes, I feel miserable. I'm 42 years old. I'm overweight. I exercise an hour a day. She was telling me this story about how she loves her husband, but but she has no desire for sex. She just went on and on. And she said, the worst part was this morning. She went to her, she, right before she saw me, she had gone to her GYN, her GYN doctor for her annual. And she told the same story as her doctor about how she was feeling, I can't lose weight. She, actually, she hardly eats anything. She has three children she loves. She's trying to keep up and, and can't. And she feels so tired. She told this to her GYN doctor and she looked at me and she said, and my GYN doctor looked at me and said, honey, that's how you're supposed to feel. Oh, no. Uh, 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 42 years old. She has at least 40 more years of viable life, three children to raise. And this is how you're supposed to feel for the rest of your life. And this 
The worst part is this was a young female GYN specialist. And so, and so she didn't, she was, Sarah wasn't coming there to see, by the way, she's still my patient 16 years later. Um, she wasn't there to see me for Botox. She was there for anything, for something that would make her feel better about herself. She tried the system. She tried, you know, exercise. She did all these different diets, everything. And she just, all she wanted was something to make herself feel better. And that's just one. And I hear that story every week. Um, every single week. So when I talk about gender bias in medicine, we usually either mean an unintended but systemic or, 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 or systematic neglect of either women or men. It's not just women, but either women or men, but in particular, mostly women. Stereotypes, like they're assumed and, and, and assumed gold standards are just are based on studies, mostly on men with the idea that women are smaller men. And this started far back, way back. Uh, I mean, way back when Aristotle called women inside out men, I don't know if you know that, but, uh, you know, he called women inside out men. He defined women as medically faulty and defective. And this idea of women being the defective sex was perpetuated over centuries, magnified, magnified early in the 1900s. I don't know if you know this or not, but the, our current U.S. Um, education system was overhauled right around 1920. The Canadian and U.S. Um, medical education system was overhauled, for better or for worse. And in the context of women's health, it was for the worse because this is where the modern gender bias began. First, in the overhaul of uh, uh, first, in, in the overhaul was was to eliminate women as physicians. Period. I mean, you, eliminate you're talking about the Flexner Flexner report, Ben. Yeah, the uh, Flexner report. Exactly. I, I didn't know that. That actually, that's crazy, though. That doesn't. What, what was the justification for that? Oh, well, it was to standardize the idea of, of standardizing what was all over the place um, at that time. You know, um, it was good medicine happening, but there was also just junk. And so they, they wanted to standardize, but they, and they, uh, and, and he based this on uh, the, the, the a German concept of tying the medical school to a hospital, which was a good thing. I mean, that, this really, there was a lot of good things about this. And, but unfortunately, um, like I said, the, one of the first things they did was to eliminate all, all um, female physicians. And then the second thing was to standardize the idea of focusing on diseases um, uh, only in medical education, not in health. So, of course, this is a bit more complex than that. But in short, that like gender bias is the systemic neglect of women in our healthcare system. Wow. That's, there's so much profundity there. And I mean, women being, you know, at least half of the world's population, that doesn't make a lot of sense to not have women's physicians, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's uh, at that time, the average age, uh, the average uh, lifespan of a woman was about 52 years old. And if you're a woman of color, it was around 38, 39 years old. So you fast forward 100 plus years. And now the average age of a woman is 82 and um, women of color are catching up about the same. But we in the healthcare system are stuck in the idea, all the studies, I mean, you're stuck in the idea that women are done at the age of 52, you're done. And so we throw Prozac at you for your menopause symptoms, thinking that's gonna fix your health for the next 40, 50 years. We tell the 42 year old struggling um, mom of three that this is how you're supposed to feel yeah it's it's, it's rough and, and i know you're also you know certified and you know fellowships and sort of anti-aging medicine or healthy aging and in a way when i hear you speak about this you know your, your patient sarah that's 42 years old you know even i think our language is kind of like why don't we call it 42 years young i mean she has half of her life left you know we're almost like age bias too right like you said 52 yes. years we're done you know menopause I mean, we're done that doesn't but you know there's still like 30 40 maybe more years to go for a lot of women you know spec based on their life viable viable, viable years yeah. not yeah not not just we're going to get you to, to 82 in the last 10 years of your life you're in a cane or a wheelchair no we're talking we're talking in order to get to, to maintain or get to that point of viable end of life years, you have to start early. And the gender bias neglects that. 
Would, would you say that's why integrative health, which we both practice, of course, is becoming more popular now among the mainstream, you know, getting to more like, let's look at, you know, both genders or all types of genders, we'd say transgender, you know, gender neutral, um, you know, also focusing on both not only disease, but also wellness. What, what are your thoughts about the role of the integrative health movement and, and gender bias? And, and I, I want to start off with uh a negative thought, but, uh, but, but I, I am. Let, let, let's go there. Positive. Let's go there first. So we can always, <laughs> we can always go up, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I went to the university of Arizona for medical school, studied under the auspices of a guy named Dr. Andrew Weil, a lot of integrative physicians know Andy and, um, know of his work. He's still out there. 30 years ago, these were the narratives that we were talking about whole foods, organic, eat better, think about prevention of disease, the exact same narrative that we have now, yet it's, we haven't gone anywhere. I feel like I'm still lecturing, uh, preaching to the choir. Um, I'm still, um, you know, the, the, the world has, got, the U.S., the world has gotten fatter. You know, we're supposed to be, you know, the, we're supposed to be in a better place because of what we were thinking time, that same exact narrative is, is 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 happening today so so it's very frustrating we are stuck we we in medicine and this is how we're trained we're trained to think linearly and we're trained for our at least gold standard so to speak we're stuck and it's hard to change that um and uh uh you know I, the good news is we're still talking about it now we have more standards we have um, integrative medicine groups. We have integrative medicine um, discussions that are trying to standardize this, and hopefully we'll move ahead a little faster in the next uh, uh, three years, let alone 30 years. Well, let's talk about, thank you, let's talk about how gender bias impacts different aspects of health, whether it's things like clinical yeah. trials, whether it's treatment in the exam room, whether it's patient outcomes, you know, even even lack of access to care or maybe even fear of going to receive care because of always being shut down. So let, let's just talk about all those things. Explore Can you imagine things. that? Can you imagine shut, being shut down over and over and over? And I'm not talking about just for um, each appointment you've gone to, but for decades as a gender being shut down. Um, and and it's it's, uh, you know, it's frustrating. Um, Probably, um, some most probably the most common example is cardiovascular disease, right? The number one killer uh, of women in this country is, is heart disease. And it's funny when I ask, I ask my patients, um, both men and, and women, I ask them, what's the number one killer in this country for women? And usually I get things like breast cancer or, and, and, and cardiovascular disease, that's getting more and more understood. But it still surprised me, the heart, the hyper, the, the high percentage of people that don't understand that no one killer women is heart disease. And in fact, the absolute numbers for women living with and dying of cardiovascular disease and stroke exceed those of men. And in fact, about uh, 10 years ago, a study showed that women account for 60% of stroke deaths in the US yet. And I believe as a direct cause of the majority of studies done in cardiovascular disease was done on men the avatar of the 70 kilogram, you know, white male. And many of these studies border on the ridiculous. The, the major studies um, that have set the so-called gold standard in cardiovascular treatments, such as aspirin and statins, mostly done and some exclusively only on men. And that's just one powerful example of gender bias and negative impact on diagnosis. Um, you know, conditions, gender bias shows up in every aspect of medicine. I mean, every aspect. I'm just giving you one quick example. It, it reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you know Dr. Alyssa Zingman. She's in Silver Spring. She's a musculoskeletal specialist, has EDS. She's been on the podcast talking about EDS. She was sharing with yeah. us that in her you know, 10, 15-year journey of trying to get a diagnosis of EDS as a physician, she was shut down multiple times by many doctors saying she's a hypochondriac. They knew she was a doctor. you know. So I thought that was... Really, and I, I would almost wonder, like, what if she was a guy, or you know, what if she? I, I wonder if they would have taken her more seriously. I don't. And know. you know, that's been studied. Yeah, that's been looked at. Um, I mean, over the last century, since since that overhaul um, of our medical education system we talked about earlier, 
basically women's health is boiled down to breasts and pelvis. I mean, if you Google uh, women's health, you'll find the top discussions concern breast, ovarian and uterine cancer, um, sprinkled with sexually transmitted diseases and weight loss, and all followed by uh, discussions on abuse. In other words, mostly victim medicine, and that's kind of where it's been worse. If you go, this drives me nuts now I think about it. When you go to the CDC women's health section, the CDC women's health section, and, and you go to the cardiovascular disease and women's health landing pages, and I just checked it this morning, um, wondering if it was still uh, this way, but um, those sections have been missing links and landing pages for years. And like I said, I just checked on this morning just to make sure um, that's still, yep, and it's true. Yes, basically women's health has been boiled down over the years to what's called, uh, you know, what was termed, um, I can't remember who did it or when I first heard this, but bikini health, you know? So, so they women's literally have a health. broken link on the number one killer in the U.S. for the women's health, which is cardiovascular disease. Well, let's just do a PSA because I think that is sad, but let's Let's try to be part of the solution here. What is the number one or number two, let's say, what are your top symptoms that you see that you would see for women if they have heart disease symptoms? Because we know that it's a little different than men, right? It's not always that classic angina or chest pain. It could be, but. Well, it's funny you should ask me that <laughs> because I have a very personal story that, um, and I don't even know if you know the story and how you get that question in, but uh, it's perfect for um, my wife, my very beautiful, in shape, um, vegetarian, highly active wife. You see her on TV. She does these TV things and, and you see this very active um, Latina woman, um, great shape, vegetarian. She had her first heart attack at the age of 38. Whoa. And you know, all physicians know, heart disease doesn't start on the day that you had that heart attack. It started years before. And, and so she had symptoms of just being a little tired, mostly GI symptoms, some pulmonary symptoms. And in fact, she'd seen some specialists for her GI issues and her pulmonary issues. She had some great doctors. Um, and I'm not disparaging physicians. I'll make that really clear. I'm say that now. I'm not disparaging physicians. I'm, just, I, I, I'm frustrated with the system. So my wife, she goes to these docs, gets treated, gets tested, gets all sorts of tests and treat, but you know, it can't be your heart, obviously, because you're 38 and you're vegetarian in great shape, all the way to the point where she had her heart attack. Um, and that was when she was 38. I met her four years after that. And it surprised me that she was on four different cardiac drugs, caught me totally off guard. So kind of liked her when I first met her. You know, and uh, um, and so I put her through my full functional medicine workup, and uh, and lo and behold, there were some things missing, some base. And she had a great, she had great physicians. In fact, her cardiologist was the president of the. Uh, you know, she, her business is in D.C. We live in the D.C. area. Um, her cardiologist was the president of the Women's Cardiology Association, the U.S. Women's Cardiology, American Cardiology Association. So she had great physicians. Now, when I did the workup, her vitamin D level was in single digits. I think it was six. Um, I checked it again, and it was single digits. Her testosterone levels were non-detectable at 30, at, well, when I met her, 42, 43 years old, non-detectable. Do you think testosterone plays a role in heart function, cardiac function? <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. And, and that's one of the biases. And I know I'm, I'm going to probably deviate here if I start talking about hormones. We can talk about but, that. And, and yeah, we'll, we'll go yeah we can hit that later. Yeah, let's that's hit that later. Subject. <laughs> that's a whole podcast. But, yes. uh, but the bottom line is, and those are just a couple of things. Her magnesium levels, her red blood cell magnesium levels were low. There were, there were multiple things. So over a period of 18 months, correcting those things. Remember, things don't happen overnight. We don't fix things overnight, right? Uh, it takes a little time. So over 18 months, corrected those things and was able to get her off of all her cardiac drugs. And by the way, she was told she needed to go on a fifth one, a beta blocker for her heart remodeling, all that. And um, I mean, her blood pressure was in the 90s. Um, so she, she just didn't want to go any more medications. So anyway, over 18 months, got her off all the, all the medications, 
But don't get me wrong. This is not a discussion about, you know, uh, medicine bad. Um, it redirected looking at her as a woman, not as a man, not as the gold standards of cardiovascular disease on 70 kilogram uh, male, white male, but as a Latina woman and her physiology, correcting those things and putting her on the right medications to get her into the right place. And her last cardiac cath injection fraction was 45, uh, 46%. And her cardiologist said, what are you doing here? So, you know, that that's, here's a, and here's, a, oh, I could go on. <laughs> Sorry. This is but great. Here's, here's what happened at her last cardiac catheter. This, I can't make this up. She's in the, she's post cardiac cath. She had, uh, she had a little bit of a chest uh, discomfort. So, you know, took her to the hospital had cardiac cath, doing fine. Um, and the, during rounds, all the cardiology fellows, not the interns, but all the cardiology fellows came around and they presented, uh, you know, and, uh, they presented who she was to the attending. And then the, the fellow said, and she's better because of all the cardiac drugs she's on. Because hmm. in her chart, it still showed that she was on beta blockers, lisinopril, um, uh, statins, et cetera. And she looked up and she said, uh, she said I'm, I'm, not on, I'm not on any of those drugs. I haven't been on in a while. And, and then the, the resident, I mean, the resident, the uh, fellow kind of, kind of muffled a little bit and then said, oh, well, I mean, you know, you got better because of those drugs. And, uh, and he said, she goes, no, no, I, I'm, here's my list. And she gave her the, you know, gave him the supplements and the, um, uh, the medications, which are the vitamin D, the testosterone, the hormones, all those things. And, um, and he was a little flabbergasted and he said, well, you got better because of the drugs. He just kept persisting in saying that she got better because of the drugs and she hadn't been on them in years. And, uh, and she was a little better on the medication, but still having side effects. You know, imagine all the side effects, Yeah. let alone, you know, the, the, the other issues that these medications cause. And so the attending finally stepped in and said, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. Let's listen to her. And um, so the dogma of gold standard, so to speak, is ingrained in us. It's beaten us as physicians. And it's, uh, you know, we're taught to think linearly in medicine. And that's the most dangerous way to think in medicine. In engineering and logistics and whatever, one plus one is two. But in medicine, one plus one could be pie and chocolate, you know? And we have to think uh, away from the linear thought process that's beat into us in medical school and then driven hard in residency and then more so in, um, in you know, uh, postgraduate education. Um, we just have to get away from that. My wife's a perfect example. Um, you know, frankly, I got into this. So I'm a medical feminist, if you haven't figured that out by now. I'm That's awesome. a 100% medical feminist. Uh -huh. And every single thing that I learned was not from the books, wasn't from from good old Dr. Weil, I mean, he, you know, pushed me, of course, but it was from the mistakes. The mistakes that I saw I make, I made in medicine in the beginning of, of my career, the mistakes that I saw with my wife, with my sisters, with my mother who suffered from obesity for years, who had a gastric bypass in the 70s when I was in high school, had a gastric bypass in the 70s, and we were only doing 5,000 bypasses a year then. And then watching her over the decades after that suffer through the diets and the, and the procedures and the torture that the system. And then when I became a physician, thinking I'm going to fix my mom, <laughs> and then making the same mistakes because they were beat into me, knowing that there was something wrong inside. There's something just wrong underneath and what I was saying to my mother, my sisters, the women that were in front of me, even in trauma. And, um, and that's, this is where my passion comes from for this. My family, my female patients, my, my wife, um, my daughters, my grandchildren, um, who this all starts early with the very first GYN exam starts early. Oh, anyway, that's why. Th thank you, from. thank you for that personal story. And I, I think we can all agree that you know women do make up the majority of quote unquote patients in the healthcare system. 
So we really do need to be more attuned to, to you know, gender bias and really treating people like individuals, right? Um, I want to get into really, really uh, a little bit here on um, since we're talking about women here, but also trans and gender neutral. What what is your yeah. thoughts about that? Uh, you know, I'd love for you to educate our listeners on that. A little bit. Yeah. Um, so gender bias, obviously, is uh, and I'm, I focus on women, women's health. So that's where my discussions come from. But yes, um, gender bias, the true definition involves whether it's men, transgender um, or otherwise. Um, and in fact, it was interesting for the very first time uh, at a large conference last November, um, for the very first time, I heard lectures on the subject um, of transgender medicine in the context of integrative medicine. Um, and I'm not talking about just one hour. I'm talking about there was a whole afternoon dedicated to um, transgender um, medicine. And, and it was fascinating. Um, so gender bias, it's bad enough when we're talking about women in general. If you're a woman of color, it's worse. If you're an older woman of color, it's, it's worse. If you're anywhere in the transgender community, it's probably the worst. Um, uh, there's no counseling. There's no, there's minimal, minimal uh, studies. Um, there's, we're guessing. And I, as you know, I do hormones and I do, I help with transition, um, with transitions after counseling, after, you know, the appropriate counseling. Um, and, and there's nothing we're guessing we're, we're taking shots in the dark. And, and I see, um, uh, these patients come to me on high doses of, of hormones. Um, and, and it was dumped in their system, like in one day, no transition to, 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 to the change, you know? Um, so, there's, there's, in that context, we are way behind. So I was talking about a century being behind in women in general. Um, think of how much further behind we are with transgender medicine. Got it. Well, this is a lot of, you know, eye-opening conversation. I hope this is, um, you know, something that we all think about as health healthcare professionals, but also as public. You know, we, we need to kind of be the change and just be aware, just being aware of these issues, I think, is the first step. Let's talk about some um, some things, you know, in terms of diagnoses. You know, we're, we'll talk about yeah. uh, health as well. Um, let's talk about diagnoses first. So we think about certain, you know, big big topics. We talked about heart disease and the difference in symptoms between women and men. Um, even though there's, you know, even though we're educated as as physicians, right? We're educated as practitioners that yeah, there's some there's some symptom differences, but but at the end of the day, if we're kind of like you said, there's, the system kind of hammers into us. Well, you know, a lot of times people are just making this up or something, you know, or that's not really real symptoms. So even in the context of okay, let's take it seriously, the system is kind of subconsciously telling us not to take it seriously in a way. Unless we listen with open ears and open overtly, as overtly well, yeah. as well, yeah, exactly. Um, when mental health, so women are nearly as twice as likely as men to have a mental health condition, but then also that's more likely to be used as a reason for their symptoms, whether it's you know mental symptoms, physical symptoms. Um, what is what? What can we do, or you know, how can we kind of change or transform as a healthcare system, as practitioners as well, in terms of you know treating all genders, you know, uh, better? Well, first, um, I guess, is the understanding that it exists. First, acknowledging that gender bias exists, right? It's everywhere in medicine, everywhere. This is where I've spent most of my research on this subject. There's there's a timeline of neglect. Uh, to get to an understanding, there's a timeline of neglect to understand here um, for providers. Um, and let's jump 50 years ahead of that Flexner report that we talked about earlier, the 1920s, 1915 uh, Flexner report. <clears throat> Excuse me, that overhaul of the medical education. Let's jump 15 years ahead of that. So um, not much changed in that half century. In fact, very few women in the medical field, mostly, mostly men, um, uh, were participants in medical studies. In the early 1970s, the percentage of female physicians were still in the single digits. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, still in the single digits. And that was in the 70s. I mean, even with Title IX in 1972, right? I think Title IX was 1972. Uh, the education amendments came 
uh, you know, now go ahead 20 years from that time, so 1990, um, and only the OBGYN specialties finally break the 50% mark. But all the other specialties were still less than 15, 20% uh, women. So jump ahead another uh, 20 years. And in the hierarchy of medicine, you know, deans, full professors, first authors, um, <clears throat> they all had a very low percentage of women. And in, and in 20, 2018, in a 2018 study showed that that narrative pretty much is the same. So um, did you know there was an actual, this is gonna kill you. <laughs> Um, did you know there was an actual policy, an actual FDA policy that excluded women from phase one and phase two drug trials, including contraceptives? Now, how do you, how, right, right? Yeah, I, I can't you, even, um, I can't even wrap my head around that. How do you yeah. reconcile that, yeah. right? It's yeah. so dis, it's so dis, and, 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 the, and the, here's the, here's the justification. They're citing, and I'm quoting I'm paraphrasing, I should say, um, the delicate nature of the fertile female as the reason we're not to include them in these trials. And I'm not making this up. In the late 1980s, there was a memo circulated in the NIH to encourage the inclusion of women and minorities in studies. We're encouraging. I mean, that's all it was, was just a memo. And it wasn't until after I was in medical school um, at the, and, uh, that the NIH turned that memo into a policy. And, and it wasn't even until after, oh, maybe during medical school, maybe after medical school, that that Revitalization Act, um, what year was that? Uh, 90, early, early 90s, that that policy was turned into law in the 90s. It's crazy. And it, it wasn't until after 2000, after the turn of this new century, that the Institute of Medicine actually recognized that women and, and men are different. And I'm not making this up. Wow. Um, you know, it, it's called the, uh, the uh, Sex Matters Report. Um, I was giving this lecture, Dallas, um, and I was about 20 minutes into the, this, this lecture on gender bias. And I was giving these discussions, you know, these introductions to the history of what was going on. And, and I was just right past the history. I was getting into the studies and and one of the physicians, she, she raised her hand and you know, they were told to all the, the audience to bring their questions after we finished speaking, but she raised her hand. She kept putting her hand up and finally she stood up. She, I couldn't ignore her. She stood up, raised her hand and I finished my, my slide thought. And then I pointed her and said, yes, yes, what's up? And she says, okay, she says, I don't believe you. She goes, I don't believe you. And, and, and heads were like, like they were just, the cognitive dissonance is so incredible that, I mean, she stood up and said, I, I just don't believe you. And I said, I said, oh, give me another 20, 30 minutes. It's going to get worse. <laughs> and, uh, um, and uh, I said, just don't, just don't throw tomatoes at me. It's the system, it's the system. And you guys are, the physicians are the victims in this, in this system. But ultimately, of course, it's the it's the patient that pays the price. Wow. That's... So I get fired up about this. Uh, you know, there's some really crazy examples. Uh, a study out of Rockefeller University Medical School looked at how obesity impacts uh, breast and uterine cancer. I don't, I don't know if your audience knows this, um, but I know you know this. I specialize in um, in uh, metabolism medicine, uh, you know, weight loss and, uh, and metabolism. And so there was this, I came across this study and uh, you know, looking at obesity and how it impacts breast and uterine cancer and all the subjects studied, all of them, hundred percent were men. That's, that, let that sink in. Yeah. A study on how obesity impacts uterine and, and, and breast cancer all done on men. How, how can that, that even, can, yeah, that, 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 how can that, that just pass the IRB? Yeah. Yeah. How can you imagine that IRB discussion? I would love to have sat down, go back in time and sat down in that discussion and just how did that even get justified? And this isn't in the 1920s or 30s. And this isn't, uh, you know, this is not a university to throw, you know, throw dirt at. This is the Rockefeller University in New York City. A very reputable institution. Yeah. And, and we're making our 
we're making our clinical decisions in the exam rooms with patients based on this data, right? So we, we need to shine a light on this, like, like you know, you're doing so brilliantly here. Um, since you are metabolism and, um, you know, healthy weight kind of doctor, this is a perfect segue into a question I was about to ask you about IF, intermittent fasting. You know, um, what is your thought about IF and, and gender bias, right? Is IF good for everyone, right? I mean, if you think about some of those studies, if they've been done on mostly men, you know, that this is one of the questions I have about IF. Yeah, um, it's funny you should mention that because uh, I, I, in my lectures uh, in obesity, when I talk about metabolism, medicine, and obesity, um, hormones, um, you know, there is a difference between men and women. We unlearn that in, in uh, medical school. We, we do. We, we get, we, we, it's ironic. It's we unlearn the difference between men and women in medical school. And then it gets even more uh, you know, beat into us, like I said earlier, in residency. But there's a difference in our physiology. Um, you know, there's, uh, um, and this, this goes, uh, um, uh, this goes from everything from reduced oxygen carrying capacity. Um, there's actually, uh, uh, in pharmacokinetics, the standard drug dosage is, um, you know, is based on that 70 kilogram male. Uh, you know, even in, in women, the ion channels. Um, uh, react differently in renal and cardiac and cardiospecific medications differently between men and women. And we don't take that in consideration. Uh, hormonal response. Um, uh, you were asking about intermittent fasting. I, um, uh, there's, so there's not a lot of studies done on, you know, you know studies are poor. There's the positive studies when it comes to weight loss and, and um, weight loss management metabolism is, is low. We think there's a lot of studies out there, but the study, most of the studies are done um, in a gender biased fashion, of course, done on weight loss, but not on metabolism and not on the management of metabolism and main, the maintenance of weight loss. Um, so all these physiologic differences between women, men, men and women matter when it comes to what diets and exercise and, and intermittent fasting, as you mentioned, um, when you're giving that advice. Now, I know this discussion, uh, this goes beyond uh, the podcast, but I, I, I hope you don't mind if I mention a few things. Of course. Um, that like, uh, for example, um, postprandial me metabolism, uh, glucose and fat oxidation is different between men and women. Exogenous estrogens uh, for example, um, you know, women, a lot of women on birth control, so your exogenous estrogens induce the reduction of postprandial free fatty acid oxidation. So translated, what that means is if a woman's on a medication, especially if they're on a hormone, they're going to react differently. And women know this. Physicians know this. We ignore it. We kind of, we see the changes in physiology when we give a medication to a woman as opposed to a man, but we kind of ignore it. We just blow it off or worse, we give another medication for that side effect. Um, uh, women burn more fat during exercise. Um, there's a higher fat glucose burn rate yet women have a hard time losing weight. Why is that? Well, we don't understand the full reason why that is, uh, women lose less fat than men with the same energy deficit. Um, so to answer your question about intermittent fasting is that there is a difference between how women and men react. Um, intermittent fasting uh, does a body good overall for men and women, but we need to be careful of uh, persistent ketones, a starvation state that's induced because a woman um, or a man um, stops eating as much and they start eating less and less and less. So what happens to their metabolism? Their metabolism adjusts and starts to slow down and then you throw in intermittent fasting to someone who's not eating a lot in the first place. Um, and you get a different reaction for men and women. You get a different result. And yet we give the same advice to both men and right. women. I and, hope and I answered that Yeah, you question. did. Yeah, thank you, Ben. And I think just throwing in, like, you know, the adrenals, thyroid, and the whole sex hormone axis, right? To oh, that. yeah. We intermittent fasting hormones, will affect right? all those in a different way, too. In a um, very different way. Yeah. And then if you're on a medication... Yeah. It's, if you're on a medication, especially if you're on a birth control, hmm. right? And, and we give the same advice. One of my complaints in my field is that we give the same advice to the 20-year-old, the 30-year-old, 
the 40-year-old and the 50, 60, 70-year-old when it comes to exercise more, eat less. You know, we, we don't adjust our discussion um, to that same height, same weight woman who's 25 versus when she's 55, all the different medications are on, whether they've had children or not. You know, every time a woman has a baby, they become a different woman. And, and we need to take that into consideration. It's really about personalized medicine, it sounds like. Uh, what, what can we do to stop gender bias in the medical field? What are some of the solutions wow. that you foresee here? Right. Um, <clears throat> educate, 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 right? I mean, educate, 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 educate. Now, my mistake, I shouldn't say mistake, my, my focus for, for years was to educate physicians, educate physicians, and of course, the patient in front of you. But now um, uh, I've changed my mind a little bit. I, I've decided to kind of um, go into the, okay, let's get the general public understanding this. And, and I'm not original on this. There are other great, and in the end, when we talk about resources, I'm gonna give you some, some uh, great, uh, you know, great individuals, individual physicians and entities that are doing their best to educate the general public. But I've shifted my discussion to physicians, I feel like I beat my head against the wall on this, to the general public. So I'm actually writing a book about this. I'm a little late with it. I've been talking about this for over six years, very frustrating. Um, uh, but I'm writing a book on gender bias. And of course, you know, a man, a, a male physician um, writing a book on this. But you heard some of the stories I told already on this podcast. I think as women start to relate to what I say in the stories that they, uh, that I think um, the general public will be more and more outraged about this. And then, but we're behind, right? We've we, we, we talked about this. We're, we're not just behind by a few years or a few decades. We're behind by a century. Hmm. And we haven't even talked drugs um, and the, the, the craziness about drugs and, um, and FDA approval for, uh, medications for both men and women. Well, well let, let's mean, touch on that for a sec before we get to resources. So good. I'm glad. I kind of hinted there. I'm glad you took it. <laughs> you can take yeah. that smell that head there. Um, let's talk about FDA approved drugs and you know what percentage of those drugs that are approved are are actually you know based on gender bias studies. A another one of those is gonna just <laughs> can't understand right. So uh, the sex differences of one third of all FDA approved drugs are unknown. Um, there was a 2005 analysis of 300 new drugs um, shown that it showed substantial pharmacokinetic differences and uh, with no labeled sex specific dosages. So, and, and you know, um, uh, between around the turn of the century, between 1997, 2000, 2001, Eight out of 10 medications pulled from the market were due to harm to women. Eight out of 10. Mm. And one of my very favorites, <clears throat> one of my very favorite examples is the drug um, um, Addy. Uh, the generic is, um, oh, flimbanserin. Um, the female, the recently approved female, uh, touted as a female Viagra. Um, Addy, I think I'm saying it right. Well, um, does anyone think that alcohol and sex mix, right? <laughs> well, of course, and, and they need to study the effects of alcohol on such types of drugs. And this study did happen. Um, and um, it was a small one, 25 participants, 23 men and two women studied on a drug intended only for women. I'm not talking 20, 30, 40, 100 I, I, years I, ago. I don't I just don't understand how these studies pass IRB. I, I'm like talking just, about just, just a few yeah. years ago. Yeah. Sad, right? Who's making these decisions? I, I just don't understand. I, I don't understand either. And I see medications being pulled. You know the big story about the compounding and compounding medications. I see good medications um, with, I mean, literally zero zero documented long-term issues being pulled or the ability to to reach to these medications being pulled to help um women and men um in a non-gender biased way i, I know that's, that's so, so ben we, we it is very helpful we first of all let's since we always talk about root cause medicine on this podcast i think root cause of the issue here what 
what's going on? Is it that not enough women are volunteering? Are the people making the decisions kind of steering it more towards men because they secretly be- believe that's still the gold standard for a 70 kilo man that, you know, in these studies that are. And that's why, yeah. honestly, that's why I bring up uh, the history of gender bias um, because it's, it's important to understand what got us here and how the hierarchy of, of medical education and of studies um, got us to this point. Um, I mean, like I said, it was just a few decades ago that we just started allowing women to be fully participating in, in, in studies. And as you know, studies take years and look how long it took for us to get over and we're still not over it, Women's Health Initiative. Yeah. Right? So it's, 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 it's gonna take a lot of effort and there is at the end of this, we're going to talk and when you're ready to, to wrap it up, I'll give you some very positive things that are happening. But the bottom line is we've got a lot of dogma and a lot of bias to sort through. And we have female, young female physicians who are still handing out Prozac to the perimenopausal, postmenopausal woman, because that's the standard. We still uh, have um, ignore I mean, we still think the chest pain, left arm uh, discomfort is the standard for women's um, cardiovascular disease, acute MI, you know, um, so got a lot to go through. Yeah, a lot to learn. Like you said, a lot to probably um, unlearn and rethink these things. And let's let's go with uh, resources and kind of wrapping up, hopefully on a note of optimism. What's the future of this? Uh, how can we get more, more women in, in healthcare leadership positions as well? But let's talk about resources first. Yeah. Um, so I pulled some things up so I wouldn't be so random. Give me a second here. Let me find them. Um, where, where are we? Here we go. Um, so... Uh, um, there's a, um, uh, a, a book, Justice and the Inclusion of Women in Clinical Studies. And by the way, I'm sure within the podcast, um, you'll have a way for, uh, you know, you, we, can, we can show this and when I, I've got a slide, I can show you, I can pass to you and you can pass sure. it on to yeah, your audience. But um, Justice and, and the Inclusion of Women in Clinical Studies, a conceptual framework. This was done by NIH, sadly, in 1999 about the issues, we're still in the same place, but about the issues of inclusion women in, in studies, there's a, a applying a women's health lens to the study of the aging brain. Um, that's another good one uh, published in uh, 2019. Now, um, the reason why I like this little discussion is because, discussion is because um, it talks a lot about the gender bias and the physiologic differences and the pharmacokinetics of men and women. Um, uh, there's a, a physician who beat me to it. She uh, beat me to the book. Um, Allison McGregor, she wrote a book on uh, sex matters, discussing gender bias. Um, wonderful book. Um, and uh, so she's a great resource. Um, Caroline Perez, a UK uh, researcher, wrote a book a while back called Invisible Women. Great resource. Uh, that's an easy one to remember. And Visible women. And then the NIH. NIH is coming around. Um, the Office of Research on Women's Health, um, uh, wonderful director there. I'm, I'm blanking on her name. Uh, oh my gosh, don't tell her I said that. I hope she doesn't watch this. Um, that, uh, uh, but the Office of Research on Women's Health, they are getting more and more, um, they've got great uh, conferences. Um, online and uh, in-person conferences on gender bias, women's health. They're really doing a good job pushing women's health forward. Um, again, a little behind like all of us are, a little behind on the uh, um, on, on research and all that. But I mean, we talked about this, research is, 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 is minimal for, for women's health, um, but we are growing um, and we are getting in a better place. Well, this is great. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you so much, Dr. Gonzalez, for coming on today and um, really shedding the light on shining a light on gender bias and how we can treat our you know mothers and wives and daughters and aunts you know uh, everyone you know a, a bit better uh, people that are gender neutral 
queer, transgender. I mean, I think there's so many different categories here that we could really get into. But at the end of the day, it's about treating people as people, as, you know, whole people, individualized, personalized. People are not numbers. So I really think, you know, you do a great job of that in your practice with your research and education, um, educating physicians and now the public. Can't wait to read your book that when it comes out as well. <laughs> Good luck with your book. Um, can we ask you a couple of... This year, man, this year. This year, all right, 2022 <laughs> is a year. Um, wh what kind of, we want to ask our guests too uh, some fun questions. Uh, one question I think would be good. Um, what is, what is your morning routine? Um, you know, we know that morning routines are really great for health. They kind of jumpstart the day, jumpstart metabolism. Um, what is your morning routine? <laughs> coffee. Yes. Got some. No, it's not coffee actually. Okay. Um, All right. You know, I, I've had one cup of coffee in my entire life. Isn't that crazy? That you must be a world record holder for that, I think. Yeah. Uh, I I I I just uh, I don't like the taste of coffee. It's kind of funny. And and I'm yeah. talking about military, college, medical school. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a huge co I'm not like a huge coffee drinker, but either. But uh, yeah, that that's that's funny. No, I like uh, I, I like my tea. So I start off with the tea. Um, uh, my morning routine is pretty basic. I just do kind of some stretching when I get up, followed by kind of, I, I do have a, a routine. I, I hang on this straight bar and I do 30 reps of, uh, of these leg lifts, followed by three reps of 30 um, push-ups. I do that to kind of wake my brain up, wake my body up. Yeah. And, and then depending on the day, I knock out some reading and writing and head over to the clinic. Um, breakfast depends on whether I'm fasting or not. So Great. Um, that that's kind of a basic routine. Yeah, that sounds good. And um, how can listeners learn more about you and your work with you? At, you know, your clinic and and maybe your learn more about gender bias too, if they'd like. Yeah. Um. Well, I I talk about gender bias on my social media, um, and uh, um, Instagram, for example. Um, you can find me at Ben. It's all one word. Ben Gonzalez, MD. My name. Uh, and Gonzalez is. Uh, with two Z's, as my dad uh, used to like to say, um, we're real Gonzaleses. Uh, now, I, now I just got the now I just That's got the some of the Gonzaleses out there ready to throw rocks at me. Um, so it's Ben Gonzalez, MD. Um, that's my Instagram. So I talk on that uh, on that subject there, um, and you can DM me directly on that. Um, and then I guide uh, um, docs and patients to different resources um, uh, from there. Um, you know, that's, that's probably the best way to contact me. Great. Thank you so much, Ben, for being on the podcast today. And, uh, we'll talk to you soon. And thank you so much for listening out there. If you find this very helpful, if you found this helpful, please like, and subscribe and, uh, share some of this with your friends and family that may not have known about this. So have a great day, everyone. Thank you. Take care. And thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment to leave us a review. It helps our podcast to reach more listeners. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next episodes and conversations. And thank you so much again for being with us.